hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 4 as we begin again our study in the book of Revelation. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible privilege and honor and glory and blessing it is to come into your presence today, to be lifted up by the spirit into the heavenlies, to sing with all the saints of all the ages, with the angels and archangels. And Father, we do not take this pleasure or this privilege lightly. We now ask you to teach us by your spirit and by your word and make me a capable messenger of your word today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When our children were small, one of my favorite phrases in all the world was, no assembly required. What that means is you can go to the store and buy the thing, you can take the thing out of the box, you can plug it in or you can set it up and you just use it and that's it. That's, you just do it and you use it. What an unbelievably rare and special experience it is to have something that as no assembly required. Because when you have children, everything is some assembly required. And by some assembly, what they mean is, we're gonna uh, give you a few screws and some raw materials and then follow the directions which were written on the other side of the world. And somehow you might come up with a close approximation of a thing that you might be able to use. Everything was some assembly required, from the crib, to the changing table, to the stroller, to the play sets, to the bicycles. Uh, everything comes with a big box of parts and you get to put it together. And if you're humble and if you're wise, the first thing you look for in that box of parts is that instruction manual. You look for the assembly instructions. But I was not always humble and I was not always wise. I remember lacking in humility to the point that we got a, uh, Little Tykes Cozy Coop. Does anybody remember that? Or anybody have one of those? Does anybody remember the days and weeks it took you to put that together? Uh, I thought, what's so hard? It's a car. It's a plastic car. Just follow, just make it look like the one on the box. You don't need the directions. It's just plastic. You just snap it together. What's so hard about putting together a little riding toy, a little plastic car? And halfway through, about two hours into it, I realized how mistaken I was, how badly I needed the instructions. And something like four hours later, I'm not lying and I'm not making this up. I had to have a saw and a hammer and a drill to put the thing together, which they didn't say anything about that on the box, by the way. And I finally got the car put together or a close approximation of a little Tykes Cozy Coupe. And I only had a few small parts left over. And my daughter says, Daddy, why does my floorboard have a moonroof? And I'm like, that's just, I, that's how they make them now. I don't know. <laughs> no matter what you're going to craft or build or assemble, no matter the quality of your materials or the skill of your hands, no matter the excellence of your tools, if you just start nailing boards together at random, you're not gonna end up with anything useful. You must have a blueprint. You must have instructions. You must have a plan. Your work must be guided by a standard, a vision of the end product and directions for how to get there. Only then is your work effective. Man is God's worker in the world. God created man and put him in a garden to take dominion over that, to dress it and keep it, and then raise up children who would gradually take over the entire 
earth. Man has been commissioned to take the raw materials of the world and out of those raw materials build civilizations. But as a worker, man needs a blueprint. He needs a perspective of himself. He needs a perspective of God. He needs a view of the world, what he has to work with. He needs an understanding of his own history and a vision for the future. The good news is, is that we're not sent wandering around to look for these directions for ourselves. The Bible tells us who we are, who God is, how the world works, what God has done in history, and what God plans to do for the future. And as a vision, as a blueprint, as a model for life on earth, he gives us in the Bible these various glimpses into the heavenlies. He opens up heaven for us and shows us what that's like. Now, why is that so important? Why is it important that in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Exodus and in Revelation, why is it important that we get these glimpses into heaven? It's because Jesus taught us to pray, Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're praying when we pray that is, However things run in heaven, whatever heaven's priorities are, whatever's, whatever's uh, 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 seen and done in heaven, that's what we want done on earth. We want things to run on earth the way things run in heaven. Heaven is the goal. Heaven is the pattern. Heaven is the blueprint for earth. We read in Genesis that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's up with heavens? Why heavens plural? Well, the skies above us, the atmosphere above us, we refer to as the heavens. The birds fly through the heavens, planes soar through the heavens. And then beyond that, there's the sun, moon, and stars. There's space. And that is another way of, of talking about the heavens, the, the, uh, the, the space above and outside and all around the earth. And then, and then the throne room of God is called the highest heaven in Deuteronomy 10 and Job 22. Uh, uh, the, the throne room of God is the highest of heavens. So in several places, Yahweh says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. To use more modern language, uh, heaven is the control room for earth. Heaven is the dimension of reality that is infinitely far away from us you can never get to heaven in a spaceship. And yet it's infinitely near to us so that we have access to God and we have access to the heavenlies by the, by the Holy Spirit. So in several places, the Bible opens up God's throne room. It opens up heaven to us and it shows us what heaven is like so that we can imitate it. God revealed the heavenly pattern to Moses and out of that vision comes the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is just a small earthly model of God's throne room. Later we get the temple, which is a larger and more permanent version of that. And the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel get pictures of heaven that look a lot like the earthly temple. And then when we come to the book of Revelation, we get more information and even more clarity on the way things run in heaven. That's what Revelation gives us, a view, a window, a perspective on heaven. We see in the book of Revelation how worship is conducted in heaven. We see how prayers are answered, how God works out his purpose from heaven's perspective. And this is all provided for us as a model for our worship and work. That's what we pray for. When we say, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we think of these visions and these images of heaven that we get, and we say, that's what we want. Well, John, in Revelation, as I read just a minute ago, John gets invited up into heaven. 
there's a voice that says, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So John gets invited up into heaven to see for himself and then to tell us. So the book of Revelation takes us into heaven to get a blueprint for life on earth. Now that's different from probably most of the commentary and most of the perspective on the book of Revelation you've probably heard for, for most of your life, and I have as well. It's often assumed that the book of Revelation is this esoteric collection of odd images that are nearly impossible to interpret. It's somewhat similar perhaps to the, the sayings of Nostradamus or it's like the vague predictions of fortune cookies or like a magic eight ball, things that, that only make sense if you squint real hard and leap to a few con, uh, conclusions and try to make it fit whatever modern current event you want to match it to. But that's not it at all. The word uh, revelation, which is the title of the book, the title of the book revelation means just that. It's an unveiling it's a revealing, it's, it's not an obscuring, it's not a muddling, but it's an opening up. And what is opened up and what is revealed first is Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the full title of the book. And then as, as Jesus is revealed to John, John joins Jesus in the heavenlies. And then it's a revealing or an opening up of the operations of heaven. So that we see in this book, earth and we see history from heaven's perspective. And then with that understanding and with that information, we get to work on earth. So uh, the book of Revelation then is not, don't ignore it because you think, oh, it's just so hard to understand. And it's so, such a jumble of odd images and things. No, this is a book that we must read and, and read for all it's worth and study. Starting back in December, and through the first part of this year, we studied together the first seven chapters of Revelation, and we were trucking right along. This was in the before times. You know, this is back before the world ended. And, uh, and then when the world started to unravel, I couldn't imagine talking about, you know, trumpets and seals and bowls and, and uh, uh, beasts and things in, in a hot barn. And I thought, maybe we ought to back off of uh, these, this and, and do something else for a while. But now we're in the air conditioning and comfortable padded seats and it's good. It's, it's a good time to get back to, uh, it's a good time to get back to Revelation. So uh, uh, it's been a while though. It's been long enough that it's necessary for me to recap and reset what we've studied so far. So my goal, I've got two goals this morning. First of all, I want to remember some of the major features of the book of Revelation that we studied together and then to take a brisk stroll and I mean brisk, stroll back through the first seven chapters that we've studied so far, and then we'll be all ready to pick up chapter eight next week and continue our verse-by-verse -verse study. So let's quickly review some features that we learned about the book of Revelation. Revelation is a symbolic book. It is an intertextual book. It is a practical book. It is a liturgical book. It is a Christological book. And I'm gonna unpack all those things that I just said. It is symbolic book, intertextual, practical, liturgical, and Christological. First of all, Revelation is a symbolic book. In the very first verses of this book, uh, these are things which must shortly take place. And he, Jesus, sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Jesus signified this book. He spoke the message of this book in signs using the language of symbols. If he were to communicate it in French, we would need to learn French so that we could interpret it. If he were to speak it in Klingon, we'd need to learn Klingon so we'd learn how to understand it and interpret it. But he didn't. He spoke it in 
symbols and he used the language of symbols. And it's the language of symbols that we've learned throughout the whole Bible. Not a language of symbols that we make up, mind you. We're not importing uh, uh, symbols into the text or finding our own meaning where we look at locusts in Revelation and we say, oh yeah, that means helicopters. And we see numbers and we say, oh yeah, that means microchips or something like that. That's not the kind of symbolism that we're doing here. The Bible is front loaded with the symbols that get worked into the rest of the canon of scripture. You open the book of, of, of Genesis and what do you learn about? Right from the beginning, you open Genesis and you learn about men and women and children. You learn about barrenness and childbearing, light and darkness, water and land, sky and clouds, mountains and gardens, sheep and serpents, gold and precious gems, bread and wine, trees and thorns, angels and flaming swords. And that's just in the first few chapters. It's front loaded with all this symbolic imagery, the Bible is. And then you get to Exodus and Leviticus and you find all the priestly and the temple and the tabernacle imagery, the, the sacrifices, the feast days, the order of the sacrifices. So you get all this down and you get all this in you and you learn it. And then once you get to Revelation, you see the scenes and the pictures and the types of things you see here are all the things you've seen before. You've seen this imagery before, and now it's put together in a new way to show us how things run in heaven. The Bible teaches us how to read the Bible. It, it's, it's a, uh, that's the next point that I'm going to make, that Revelation is intertextual, but it's, it's because of the way that, that the Bible gives us its system of its own interpretation that we use to understand books like Revelation. So let me go ahead and get to that next point. It is intertextual, meaning this book doesn't stand by itself. You can't open the Bible, turn to Revelation, and interpret it all by itself without any other help. In fact, Revelation is a commentary on the whole Bible, and the whole rest of the Bible is, 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 is intertextually woven in with the book of Revelation. Revelation summarizes the scriptures and sheds light on everything that came before it. One scholar counts 348 clear references from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, and that seems really low to me. I think it's more than 348, but I haven't set aside the time to count them. But on average, that means for every chapter of Revelation, there are at least 16 significant connections to phrases, to events, to people from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew scriptures, which... Again, don't you think you need to know the Old Testament in order to start reading Revelation? Don't you need to know what those are? Well, the primary audience of Revelation did know. The first century Christians who received this book, they did know the Hebrew scriptures. And so when they hear the words of Jesus and they see and read the words of John, they aren't reading this and seeing in the text, oh, that must be a rocket launcher, or oh, that must be an intercontinental ballistic missile, or oh, that's Mikhail Gorbachev or Vladimir Putin. That's, they're not thinking those things. They think in terms of the things they know from the scriptures because God has already given them what these symbols and what these things mean. So it's, it's symbolic, it's intertextual. Let's, let's add another row of bricks on that. Revelation is a practical book. If it were written to be read the way that the left behind books have interpreted the book of Revelation, it would have had no real value to the first century audience that it was initially communicated to. If it were written that way to be about things that were supposed to happen in the 21st century, for example, 
then it would have been a strange book and it would have been a comfortless book to a, a, a persecuted and struggling church in the, first, in the first century. In fact, and this is just speculative, but if, had it, if it had been that, if it had been about things that are gonna happen 2,000 years from now, it might have been so strange and esoteric that they might not even have saved it. Why would I copy this down? Why would I preserve this? Why would I, why would I communicate it? You see, we always tend to th read things as if we're the primary audience. There's this strange narcissism that is set into various generations of Christians throughout history where we believe, well, we're important, right? I mean, look at me. I'm important. You're important. We are important. We're so important that it's impossible for us to be living at any other time than the climax of history. We must be living at the climax of history. So if this book is about the climax of history, which is a big assumption, but if it is, then it must be written to us. It must be about us because we are obviously the most important generation and this must be about us. But these things were written to specific Christians in a specific geographic region at a specific time in history. Uh, back in chapter one, um, this is uh, Jesus saying once again, these, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to the servant John. Verse four, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. This is a book written in a specific historical context to a specific people at a specific geographic place. That's the, that's the direction and the audience of this book. So when Jesus says, I must come shortly, it must have some relevance to the people to whom he is writing. And by the way, he says this often. If you have your Bible open, uh, um, I've got these underlined in mine. You might want to do it in yours just to help you keep it square. But I've already read this in chapter one. These are things which must shortly take place in, in chapter one. Um, in chapter two, when he starts speaking to the churches, uh, Jesus says in chapter two, verse five, I will come to you quickly. And then in, uh, in, in chapter two, verse six, repent or else I will come to you quickly. In chapter uh, uh, 2, 25, hold fast what you have until I come. In chapter 3, he says in verse 3 and 4, I will come upon you. I am coming. In chapter uh, 3, verse uh, 11, behold, I am coming quickly. Um, in in 3.20, I am, I am coming. I will come. And you get to the last chapter. You get over to chapter 22. Uh, 22, 6. These are things which must shortly take place. Verse seven, behold, I am coming quickly. Verse 10, the time is at hand. Verse 12, behold, I am coming quickly. Uh, verse 20, surely I am coming quickly. To a specific people in a specific time in history who are living in a specific geographic region, Jesus says over and over and over and over and over and over and over, the time is at hand, I am coming quickly. And there's no sense in which we can say what he meant by that really was he's not coming quickly. <laughs> what he means by that is he's hanging out for a while. And so when you read in the book of Revelation, Jesus saying, behold, I am coming quickly. You don't look out your window and say, what's going on? Is it happening? No, stop and wait. And who is he saying that to? When he's talking about things that must shortly take place or things that are happening quickly, which he does repeatedly, when he says the time is near, we have to ask from what point in time are these things near? Of course, the nearest 
huge event, the nearest, the, the nearest world-changing event from the perspective of the rest of the New Testament is the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Jesus speaks in John's, I'm sorry, in Matthew's gospel, in Luke, and in Mark, he, he talks about the, the end of that age. And he says in Matthew 24, uh, after listing all the, um, the, the travails of that coming tribulation, all the things that are happening, he says in Matthew 24, 34, assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. And this theme is carried throughout the, the epistles. The day of the Lord is coming upon that generation. It is near. So from the perspective of these Christians who receive the book of Revelation, at this time, the judgment is coming. Jesus is coming in judgment. Now, of course, uh, this is an interesting thing we need to keep in mind. Revelation is not written to the people in Jerusalem. They've already been warned by Jesus in person. This is written to the churches in Asia, which becomes the center of Christianity. It becomes the center of the church after Jerusalem is destroyed. After the collapse of Jerusalem, all the major events happen up in Asia Minor, modern day, modern day Turkey. Uh, Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Ephesus, Chalcedon, Constantinople, that all happens in this region to which these things are being written. And the message to the, these second generation churches is, you pay attention to what's happening and what's about to happen down in Jerusalem. You watch closely because I warned them that I was coming in judgment, and I did, I did come in judgment, and this can happen to you too. As you watch these things unfold down in Jerusalem, Jesus says to these Asian Christians, I want you to get heaven's perspective on all of this. I want you to know what I say about what's going on down there. Jesus says, I want you to see me vindicated as every word I've said comes true down there in Jerusalem as their time for judgment has ripened. I want you Christians to see my victory over my enemies in all of this. And I want you to be strengthened and established in your identity as new covenant Christians, as the new covenant temple. It's this reading, it's this way of reading Revelation that has historically has made this a great comfort to the persecuted church throughout the ages and throughout the world. They don't read, the persecuted church throughout the world and throughout the ages don't read this as an incomprehensible book full of codes. They read it as an epic vision of a conquering Christ who raises his bride up out of persecution and raises her up out of martyrdom and crowns her with glory. And they see how God uses his church in the world and in worship to, to change the world. Uh, that, that makes it immensely practical and not esoteric and not nebulous. And, and that gets me to my next point is that Revelation is a liturgical book. Revelation is a worship service. Essentially what you get in the book of Revelation from beginning to end is the record of a heavenly worship service. The book is arranged, in fact, around the very same liturgical order that we use every single Lord's Day. You come into the room, you sit down, you get ready for worship, you prepare yourself, and the first thing that happens is you get called to worship. And after you're called to worship and you respond in praise, we hit our knees and we confess our sins. We're cleansed by God's forgiveness. And then we respond in praise. And then a book is opened. God's word is open and it's read and it's explored and it's, it's exegeted and it's taught. 
And then after the book is, is read, then we sit down at a feast and we eat together with Jesus. And then after that, you are blessed and uh, promises are made about the future and you're sent out rejoicing. That is the outline of the book of Revelation. At the very beginning, there's a call to worship. John is called into God's presence to worship him. And then there's a period of cleansing. We have uh, chapters where the, the churches are addressed and their sins are dealt with and they are called to repentance. And then a great scroll is opened. A great book is opened and read. And that takes up most of the book just like the sermon takes up most of the worship service. And the, the, the book, the reading of the book takes up most of the book of Revelation. And then, and then you come to the marriage supper of the lamb. You sit down at the table and feast with Jesus and then promises are made and hope for the future is given at the end. That's the outline of our worship. That's the outline of the book of Revelation. And so in this book, we have this opportunity to look into the throne room of God and watch in the context of this great liturgy, this great drama of the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so it is a, it is a worship service. Lastly, uh, in this little list, um, uh, Revelation is a Christological book. What is revealed throughout all these symbols is Jesus. And what's helpfully and practically communicated to the Asian churches is the person of Jesus. And what we see through the heavenly liturgy is the lordship and the victory of King Jesus over everything that exists. You see, the people who are living at the time that these things are being written, they're living in an environment where it's assumed that Caesar is king of king and lord of lords. Caesar has the power of life and death at his fingertips. Caesar rules all dimensions of life. For Rome, it really didn't matter what gods you worshiped in your heart. What, what do you want to worship in your heart? It's fine. Have any mental or heart religion that you want, and nobody's going to give you any trouble. It's okay. However, uh, um, you must publicly acknowledge the absolute sovereignty of Caesar openly in your life. Everything you have and everything you are is subject to the state and Caesar wants no rivals. So first and second century Christians will fall under persecution, not because they worship Jesus. Let's understand that. It's not because they worship the Lord Jesus. It was because they refused to worship Caesar. There's a big difference there. They refused to worship Caesar. They would not acknowledge the deity of Caesar. And so here comes John bringing this message from Jesus, revealing Jesus to be everything that Caesar can only claim to be and everything that Caesar most certainly is not. When he hears from Jesus in chapter one, Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. That is a highly charged, extremely dangerous political statement. If you're gonna say this, then you have to be a thousand percent positive that Jesus is who he says he is, because as far as Rome is concerned, this is treasonous. To say this out loud in Rome is politically and socially and economically self-destructive. If you say this out loud, your life as a normal Roman citizen is over. The, the revelation of Jesus confirms to these churches and these Christians in this context that they are on the right side of history, that they are behind the true king of the cosmos. Jesus is king and Caesar isn't. If I might suggest something, we're in a very similar context today that it's not about our worship of Jesus. That's not what brings us in conflict in 
the, the sphere of our, uh, of our dealings with other people in our society. It's not our worship of Jesus. That's fine. Nobody cares about that. It's not a big deal. It's our refusal to worship the gods of this age. When you are persecuted for being a Christian, it's not going to be because you worship Jesus. Again, nobody cares about that. It's because you are refusing to bow down to the gods of this age. If you're going to be persecuted as a Christian, they're not going to charge you with being a Christian. They're going to charge you with being a bigot and a homophobe and a racist. Those are the things they're going to charge you for because you're not bowing down to the gods of this age. And as they carry you off, the rest of the evangelical world is going to be cheering because obviously you are a bigot and a racist and a homophobe. Uh, it's not about Jesus. It's not about worship of Jesus. It's about not worshiping the gods of the age. And this book is communicated to people in that same context. They're communicating this. Uh, John is communicating the, the centrality and, the, and the, uh, the, the beginning and the end and the alpha and the mega and, and the, the almighty power of Jesus over all things, that, that Jesus is over all things and Caesar isn't. The book of Revelation does not teach about a Jesus who is uninvolved in world affairs. A quiet, passive, internal Christianity is exactly what the kingdoms of this world want. They want a passive, quiet Christianity. Totalitarian regimes are in incredibly compatible with a heart religion. If you want a heart religion that never works itself out in any significant way, if you want me and Jesus Christianity, the nations of the world are fine with that. No complaints. The kind of church that is compatible with the modern state is the kind of church that's content at sitting at home today. They're content watching the internet and they're content using you know, the Ritz crackers and the, and, the, and the Gatorade for communion. And it's fine. That's the kind of church that's compatible with the modern state. It's when the church believes that Jesus is not only the future king, but the reigning and present king over everything right now, that's where we come into conflict with the, age, uh, the, the, the powers of our age. That's when we come into uh, conflict with the, with, with the state and the institutions around us, that Jesus deserves our embodied presence, our embodied worship and obedience. That's when things start to heat up. And this book backs these Christians with a Jesus who is mighty and victorious, who is regal, who is a conqueror, not just the king of your head or your heart, but the king of everything. Revelation is a symbolic book. It is an intertextual book. It is a practical book. It is a liturgical book. It is a Christological book. And at this point, I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a quick uh, walk through the first seven chapters. But I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to save that for my introduction that next week. And we'll turn to, uh, we'll turn to chapter eight next week. But uh, between now and then, read back through these seven chapters, catch back up to where we've been, and we'll, we'll dive in uh, into uh, chapter eight next week. And let me leave you with this, let me leave you with this exhortation, that in, in this book, uh, that we, uh, we get this vision of heaven that is about the, um, the, 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 the priorities, the uh, the, the operations of God's heavenly throne room. In this, we see that when God says to do something, it gets done. 
that when, uh, when, when God commands the angels to come to him, they come. When he says to go, they go. There is perfect and total obedience in the presence of God. Sin does not park itself in God's presence. It cannot be tolerated. It cannot be dealt with in God's presence. There is absolute and total submission in God's throne room to God's holiness and God's purity. And when we come into his presence, that's the same expectation. The expectation is that we are the people who have dealt with our sins, who have put them aside, who have called on the name of Jesus for his forgiveness and for his, his, his uh, absolute uh, um, uh, perfect obedience on our behalf that sets aside all of our, all of our sins, that brings us through into, into obedience to the Father. And what we see and will see in heaven is this vision that we now turn to our broken, messed up, twisted up world and we take the things and the instructions that we learned there and we apply them all over the place. That's going to be the focus of the rest of our study. Let's give thanks and pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to strengthen us with this book, that you grow us in understanding, that you help us walk faithfully. And as we see this vision of heaven, may indeed this vision inform and, and propel our work in the world. Strengthen us in such a way that we're able to make things run on earth the way things run in heaven by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.